Good evening. My name is Brian Parks, and I serve as one of the elders here at Covenant Hope Church. I don't know if you noticed this week, but Abu Dhabi unveiled their architectural design for their project called Abrahamic City. It's a property where there will be three buildings standing next to one another, an Islamic mosque, a Jewish synagogue, and a Roman Catholic church. It's certainly a bold step for a country here on the Arabian Peninsula to build such a project. And for that, the UAE should be applauded. It's amazing in many, many ways. Abrahamic City will definitely speak a word to the world about living in peace beside one another despite our religious differences. And we know that this region desperately needs that kind of a word. But living in peace with one another isn't the same as the unity that's created when it comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Among those three buildings, none of them will preach the same gospel that we preach in this church. One of those buildings, the people there have never recognized the true gospel that is in their holy book. One has forgotten the true gospel of its beginnings and another rejects the gospel of free grace in Christ that the Bible holds out. True biblical unity is found in the gospel of Christ. Unity among different kinds of people in Scripture is created by the gospel because the gospel is the only thing that solves the universal problem of sin and death. The Bible teaches that God is holy and that He created mankind to live in perfect harmony and love and obedience to Him. But mankind, from the very first human beings, has turned away from God and rebelled against Him. And rebelling against God, the author of life, brings death and condemnation. And mankind has had no way in and of themselves to solve that problem, but God, in His great love for mankind sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus was fully God. He was fully man. He lived a perfect life. And then He went to the cross, dying as a substitute for sinful man. He rose from the dead, and He's ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And now anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Christ has their sin forgiven and is brought into union, perfect, loving, contented, peaceful union with God. That's the gospel. That's the message, the only message that brings true unity and peace between any person on the face of the earth. But the first church the first church that understood the gospel didn't always understand that the gospel was for everyone. That may come as a shock to you. Acts 10 was the chapter 
in the New Testament where Peter began to understand for the first time that the gospel was for everyone, even Gentiles. Now, Acts chapter 12, uh, 11 is where the church begins to understand and witness God beginning to form a global church. That's the chapter we're looking at this evening, Acts chapter 11. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. If you have one, you'll be helped to follow along. If you have the bulletin on your phone or on some electronic device, you can turn there because the text is printed there. That's what Mark, uh, exactly what Mark was reading. So you can follow along there or in your Bible. But as we read through Acts chapter 11, I want you to see and remember most of all that we preach a global gospel to form a global church demonstrating gospel grace. We, the church, preach a global gospel to form a global church demonstrating gospel grace. Jesus has been raised from the dead at the beginning of Acts chapter 11 excuse me, Acts chapter 1, I should say. And He's ascended then into heaven in Acts chapter 1 to the Father's right hand. He's alive, and all authority in heaven and earth is His. That's still true, by the way. Acts is retelling, a retelling of how the risen and ascended Jesus first pours out the Holy Spirit on His disciples and then gradually begins gathering loyal subjects into His kingdom through those disciples preaching His gospel. Jesus told His disciples in Acts chapter 1 that they would be His witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Up until chapter 10, the church was only sharing the gospel with Jews. When they heard Jesus say, to the end of the earth, they might have thought to themselves, right, right, Jesus, we'll share the gospel with Jews all over the world. Now, there were some odd things happening in those intervening chapters between chapter 1 and chapter 10 and 11. Samaritans had believed the gospel, but they usually had some Israelite heritage. And Philip the evangelist had seen a God-fearing Ethiopian eunuch baptized and become a follower of Jesus the Messiah. But these Jews never would have even dreamed that people like you or I should or would trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. They never would have believed it. In chapter 10, God began to change their minds. And so He led Peter to share the gospel with Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and to Peter's amazement, the Holy Spirit filled Cornelius and his extended family, and they believed the gospel. Now, what we're going to see in chapter 11 is Peter's testimony about Cornelius' conversion convinced the whole church in Jerusalem that the gospel isn't just meant to go to the Jews, but is for all people in the world, even Gentiles. And in the second half of the chapter, God works to form the first multi-ethnic, multinational church made up of Jews and Gentiles together. Chapter 11 is about a global gospel that begins to form a global church. 
The first of two points in the sermon this evening is the church preaches a global gospel. The church preaches a global gospel, and we see that in verses 1 through 18. We see the church realizing and affirming this there. Now, there's a lot of repetition in chapter 10 of chapter 10 in these first 18 verses in chapter 11 because it's Peter recounting in great detail how the Lord brought he and Cornelius together. But the first three verses tell us the reason why he needed to recount it in such detail, and the reason was that they didn't believe him. They didn't believe Peter about what had happened with Cornelius, and not only did they not believe him, they thought it was wrong. They didn't believe that the gospel was intended for Gentiles too, and it seems that they thought the Jews and Gentiles should stay separate from one another. Look again at verses 1 through 3 there. That sets the stage. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. And so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. The word had spread about Cornelius, and Peter went to Jerusalem to report about it to the whole church. Now, our ESV Bible, if that's the translation that you're using, uses this term, the circumcision party. But John Stott's commentary on the book of Acts convinced me that this really should just mean the Jews. Those of the circumcision, I believe, is what it literally says the Jews. The circumcision party would have been a group that developed later, which argued that for a Gentile to become a Christian, they first needed to become a Jew and to be circumcised, and then they could be saved by Jesus. So, Judaism was kind of a halfway house to salvation. That's what the circumcision party would later believe. And this criticism of Peter is that he went to Gentiles and he ate with them. Now, there was nothing in the Old Testament that specifically forbade Jews from eating with Gentiles, but you can imagine how that practice had become ingrained in their lives. If you were a Jew and you were forbidden from eating certain foods, but a Gentile invites you over for dinner, there's a chance that you could be exposed or to even accidentally eat unclean food, and that would make you ritually unclean. And so the command to not eat unclean food becomes a rule about not eating at all with Gentiles. Don't even sit down at the table with them, lest you become ritually unpure. So I imagine, for example, that there may be some Muslims here in Dubai that would be hesitant to actually enter into our homes because they fear that they'd be offered food that's haram without even knowing it. It would be that same kind of fear that would have driven the Jews to never want to eat with a Gentile. And you can imagine how that never wanting to eat with them became much more comprehensive. Don't even get near them. Peter's response to this criticism is to recount very carefully how God had led him to share the gospel with Cornelius and his family. He wants them to know that this wasn't just some plan that he came up with. It was God's plan. God led the whole introduction between Peter and Cornelius. 
Verses 4 through 17 are very close to Luke's original telling of the events in Caesarea from chapter 10 with a few important additions. For example, Peter tells them in chapter 11 here that six brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Now, that would have been important to tell the Jews in Jerusalem because it would have been understood to be six independent witnesses of what happened. They could testify. Another detail that Peter reports is in verses 13 and 14. There Peter says that the angel told Cornelius that Peter was going to bring him, quote, a message by which you will be saved. Now that's a little detail that wasn't in the description of what happened back in chapter 10. You might remember that at the end of the sermon or during the sermon last week, we discussed how some theologians argue that since Cornelius was a Gentile who feared God, he was saved without faith in Christ. And so, these theologians say that people in other religions who have no knowledge of Christ and the gospel, they can be saved apart from the gospel. We reject that idea. And this detail in Peter's recounting of the story here in chapter 11 further clarifies that Cornelius did not have forgiveness for his sins or a saving knowledge of God until he heard the gospel from Peter, until he believed and received the Holy Spirit. Why would the angel tell him that the message would be the means of his salvation if he was already saved? Clearly, Cornelius needed to hear the gospel, to repent and believe in Christ. Then in verses 15 and 16, Peter tells the Jerusalem church about an inward realization that he had when he saw that the Spirit fell on the Gentiles. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how He said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus' statement that Peter's remembering is recorded back in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, just the fifth verse in this whole book. Peter thought of the Jews and the Gentiles as us and them. But he realized at that moment when he saw the Spirit fall on those Gentiles, that Jesus had been teaching them that there is no us and them in His church. There is only we. Everyone who repents and believes in Christ receives the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit that fills us when we trust in Christ is the thing that we have in common with all other believers across the world and even across time. And that commonality is greater than any of the differences that we have between us, any of them. Peter's conclusion in his defense is that if God gave the Gentiles the same gift as He gave us Jews on the day of Pentecost, how can we stand in God's way? This is God's doing. And the answer, of course, to that rhetorical question is, We can't stand opposed to what God has clearly done. Verse 18 says, When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
One famous theologian says about Peter's Jewish critics, their criticism ceased and their worship began. The church in Jerusalem was convinced. Their minds were changed. The gospel was for Gentiles too. And if God led Peter to share the good news with them, they should too. The gospel is truly a global gospel. It's for all people, no matter where they live or in what period of time they live in. This is one of the reasons that we pray for different people groups in different countries around the world. I hope that there's a rare Saturday when you come to one of our corporate worship services that you don't hear us pray for other people groups around the world or other countries. Did you hear Mark pray for the people of Thailand just earlier? That's ordinary for us. We want it to be typical. We believe that because all people are condemned by their sin and Jesus' death and resurrection can save anyone who believes, therefore we pray that God would send missionaries to all people. We pray for Bibles to be made available in all languages. We want to see true churches planted in every country among every people group. And we want to work to that end, to give to that end, to pray to that end, maybe even to go to that end. You may not be able to take the gospel around the world yourself, although there's a lot of you that do get to travel around the world quite a bit. But we can pray, and God hears and answers our prayers for the gospel to go and to bear fruit throughout the world. And so remember that, that short prayer for some people group, some country in the world. That's important. Lean your heart and your mind into that prayer when you hear us leading you in it from the front. And let it become a pattern for you in your own personal prayer life. Pray for the world. One of the things that you might do is subscribe in your email to the Joshua Project the Joshua Project sends out emails every day into my inbox that tells me about another people group. It tells me about the religion that is predominant among that people group. It tells me where they are. It tells me about the obstacles to the gospel among them. It tells me if there are any, maybe even just a few percentages, a few percent of that people group who have trusted in Christ, and they lead me to pray for them. That's one thing you can do. It's also important to see in this recounting of Peter and the way that the church responds, the humility that they had. Do you see the humility there? The gospel had made their hearts soft to hear and to be led by the Spirit of God. And this moment in the church was a moment when they saw that they had gotten something wrong. Led by the Spirit, and convincing evidence, they changed their minds on an important theological point of belief. We should be just as humble. Are you open to being persuaded about things you believe by listening to what God says through His Word in the Spirit? Particularly when you hear His Word being preached here in the corporate gathering. Are you open to that? Now, we should hold tightly 
to the theological points of greatest importance which the church has believed for over 2,000 years. We shouldn't toss those to the side by any means. Things like the divinity of Christ, things like the humanity of Christ, the necessity of His substitutionary death on the cross for our salvation, or the Trinity, for example. Now, we hold tightly to those things. Those are of first and primary importance. But we need to humbly approach other secondary theological issues, ready to search the Scriptures and ground our faith in what it teaches, no matter what we've grown up believing. I admire wise theologians who are willing to say that they're wrong, that they've changed their mind about these secondary or tertiary issues. Wayne Grudem, for example, has changed his mind on issues like the biblical grounds for divorce or his understanding of the days of creation and other biblical issues. Tom Schreiner has changed his mind about the millennium and the end time several times. These are men who are very wise, very intelligent, very knowledgeable about God's Word. And yet they've been humble enough to say, I think I was wrong. Being willing to admit we were wrong is an act of humility enabled by the Spirit that softens our hearts and leads us into all truth. Praise God that the church in Jerusalem was being led by the Spirit, that they were humble and open to correction from the Lord Himself. Their humility would ultimately lead to you and I having the gospel preached to us. The church now understood that they preached a truly global gospel, not just a gospel for Jews. And because of this realization, God began to work to establish the first of what would become many global churches churches made up of either Jews and Gentiles or eventually just Gentiles. In verses 19 through 30, we see a global church demonstrating gospel grace. And even today, a global church demonstrates gospel grace. Verses 19 through 30 begin to recount the growth of a church that would become even more influential even than the church in Jerusalem. That church was in the city of Antioch. In those verses, it recounts how the persecution that began at Stephen's murder back in chapter 7 and the beginning of 8 forced Jewish believers north to places like Phoenicia, which would be present-day Lebanon, or Cyprus, the island off the coast of Lebanon and Syria, and Antioch, which is presently in Turkish territory near northern Syria and Lebanon. Antioch was one of the three greatest cities in the Roman Empire alongside Rome and Alexandria. It was a very important city. At its peak, it probably had a half a million people in it, which was enormous for a city of its day. It was cosmopolitan, and it had people populating it from many different countries, including Persia and India and China, and there was a large Jewish population as well. It was to Antioch that some of the persecuted Jews fled, and there they began to share the gospel with other Jews. 
but some from the island of Cyprus and some from Cyrene, which is on the North African coast, began sharing the gospel with people that Luke calls Hellenists. Now, Hellenists refers to Greek-speaking people. They're likely Gentiles with Greek language and Greek culture, possibly influenced by Judaism, but in all likelihood Gentiles. Amazingly, when these people from Cyrene and Cyprus shared the gospel with the Hellenists, a great number of them believed the gospel and they turned to the Lord. Now, that created the first recorded church that had Jews and Gentiles worshiping and following Christ together. In verses 22 through 26, the report of this mixed multi-ethnic church was reported in Jerusalem, and they thought to themselves, we need to check this out. And so they sent Barnabas. Remember Barnabas from chapter 4 of Acts? His name means son of encouragement. Not only was he encourager, but in verse 24, it tells us that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And additionally, you might remember that he's actually from Cyprus. What a perfect man to send north to this mixed church, highly influenced by Cypriot believers to see what was going on. When Barnabas arrived, it says that he saw the grace of God, and it made him glad. He must have recognized the evidences of God's work in the Antioch church's members, particularly how they must have been loving one another across their cultural differences. Now, when I think of the church in Antioch, I think of you, Covenant Hope. We're a group of Christians loving one another across lots of ethnic and cultural differences. God has gathered us together to do just that. We're praying that the Lord would produce in us signs of grace that would make people around us perhaps sit up and say, why do those people love one another? What is it that they know that I don't? We're praying that the Lord would produce in us things, things that if Barnabas were to come and visit us, he would be glad when he moved and lived among us, that he would exhort us then to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, just like it says in these verses. As Barnabas exhorted and taught them they saw even more people come to know the Lord. They were sharing the gospel still. But Barnabas was a humble man as well, and it seems that he recognized when help was needed in addition to all that he could have done himself for the church there. And so he went and he brought Saul from Tarsus there to Antioch to teach this young church. Now, it would have been known, of course, that Saul had a commission from the Lord to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. We learned that back in Acts chapter 9. And here was the first church with Jews and Gentiles in it. It was a perfect fit. And they stayed a whole year there, and they taught them what Luke says, quote, a great many people. It was in Antioch that the followers of Jesus 
began to be called Christians. You see, they, they weren't just Jews who believed in Jesus. They were Jews and Gentiles, and so they needed a new name that included all of them. So they became Christians. One thing that we see in the formation of the church in Antioch is God is the one ultimately responsible for forming churches. The Christians from Cyprus and Cyrene preached the gospel to the Gentiles, but God needed to work or else it would have come to nothing. They might have preached and no one would have come to Christ. But it says the hand of the Lord was with them. And so a church was born. Planting churches is something that we participate in, but it's God's hand that ultimately plants a church. Covenant hope is here, not so much because Redeemer sent us out and had vision for another church in the middle of the city, or that the founding elders called you to join us, or that 65 people in the spring of 2017 decided to covenant together. No, no, covenant church is here because God's hand was with us, and we should never forget that. It's not our doing primarily. Praise God for this church. Praise God. And pray to God for more like it. The second thing that we might notice is that Christians belong in churches. That may seem obvious, but Christians belong in churches. That opinion, though, isn't held by everyone who calls themselves a Christian. You might know that. Some people see being a member of a church as optional. They feel they can live the Christian life with occasional, maybe an online sermon here or there, or a Bible stashed somewhere in their home. Maybe they say a prayer before they eat a meal. But Christians are meant to band together, to commit themselves to regularly gathering, to pray and to sing and to hear God's Word taught, to build deeper than ordinary relationships with each other and pay extra attention to helping each other grow in godliness. That's what Christians are meant to do in a church. Church means gathering, assembly of people. If you're not a Christian, I'm glad that you've joined us this evening. I'm glad you're hearing about this story of the first place where people who trusted in Christ were called Christians. Even as you read this, I wonder, do you see that that is not the pattern that we see in this passage? In fact, to intentionally live as a solo Christian calls into question whether or not someone is actually a true Christian. The famous theologian R.C. Sproul said, it is both foolish and wicked to suppose that we will make much progress in Christian growth if we isolate ourselves from the visible church. And by the visible church, he means the local church, a local church like Covenant Hope Church or United Christian Church of Dubai or Redeemer Church of Dubai or Fellowship Church or we can go on and on naming true churches here in the city. If you consider yourself a Christian, the pattern of life that God's Word presents to you is one where you find and join a local church. You can explore doing that at our next membership class. I encourage you to do that.
verses 27 through 30 show even more signs of the grace of God growing in this global church in Antioch. At this time in the life of the church, God often revealed Himself through prophets, and some made the journey from Jerusalem down to the church in Antioch. One named Agabus prophesied that there would be a great famine over all the world, and by all the world, he would have meant the whole civilized world to the extent that they knew of it. Luke tells us that this famine did take place during the reign of the Caesar, Claudius, and when the famine hit Judea and Jerusalem particularly hard, the church in Antioch decided to take up a collection, each as they were able, and they were sending it to the church in Jerusalem. Saul and Barnabas be the one, would be the ones to carry it back to the church in Jerusalem. Even more evidence of grace in this global church. The mixed church of Antioch sacrificially serving their Jewish brothers and sisters in the faith down in Jerusalem. What a testimony to the work of the Lord in their hearts. The Jews who knew the gospel first were moved by God to bless the Gentiles by sharing the gospel with them. And now the Gentiles, along with the fellow Jewish church members up in Antioch, are blessing the Jewish believers with their sacrificial giving. Ah, these were Christians, and specifically Christian churches that seemed to want to outdo one another in love and honoring each other. Churches should take interest in the welfare of other churches. We pray for other churches in the UAE and beyond. We make that a habit as well. Did you hear Mark pray for the Nepalese fellowship that meets in this building? We want to continue to pray for other churches in this city and in this nation and in this region and even all around the world, praying that God would cause them to be fruitful and that many signs of grace would show up in them. We're training pastoral interns who we pray will join or plant other churches one day in the future. We're seeking to bless other congregations that we don't even know about yet. Sometimes we partner together in conferences and training events here in Dubai with other churches. I've often been blessed as I consult and seek guidance from other pastors about situations that I'm not sure how to handle. When we pray for and seek to support other gospel preaching churches, it reinforces in our minds and hearts that God uses other Christians and other churches to accomplish His will, not just us. It's sort of like the church version of not being self-centered. A real test of where our heart is for other churches would be that if we continue to pray for revival, and then instead of it happening in our church, it happened in a partner church here in this city, but maybe not in our church, would we rejoice as much if it were just happening in their church? I hope we would. We should, brothers and sisters, we should. We should rejoice just as much when our sister churches are blessed and we're not. And we should look for additional ways to bless them. All these signs of grace in Antioch, lots of conversions happening. Jewish leaders like Barnabas and Saul teaching young Gentile Christians how to grow in Christ. Sacrificial generosity being shown by one church to another across 
cultural differences when the church recognized that the gospel that they preached was a global gospel. God began to work through them to establish global churches which were filled, filled to the brim with evidences of grace. Praise God that He's still working like this today, even among us, even among us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You that this gospel that You have announced to us is a gospel for all people. It's a gospel that can save anyone who repents and trusts in Christ. We pray, Father, that You would help us have that mindset and a great love for all the people of the, er of the earth, all the people even around us here in Dubai where there are so many different nationalities, so many different ethnicities, so many different cultures, that we would share this gospel with them. Oh, Lord, cause more churches to be founded, to be planted, and cause Your grace to be shown among them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.